Well, good morning, ZPC. It's a little less, uh, I don't know, rambunctious this morning than it was last Sunday. I apologize that I am not Amy Crispin. Uh, and um, so, uh, but you are not your kids. So um, it all kind of evens out, I think. Um, but it is good to be here with you this morning. Uh, I just want to point out that Friday night we had a great concert here, the MyGat concert here. Is, um, kind of a fundraiser for them as they prepare to go off in mission, and that was a, a great time. Many folks were here to kind of sing and to support them in that, and so uh, if you came to that, I just want to say thank you uh, for that. And this morning we have um, a, a kind of an interesting text, and it comes to us from 2 Kings chapter 5. And so I'm going to uh, begin by reading the first uh, 19 verses of this story. And so I invite you uh, to hear the words, um, uh, to hear the word of God in this. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man and in high favor with his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man, though a mighty warrior, suffered from leprosy. Now the Arameans, on one of their raids, had taken a young girl captive from the land of Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my Lord were with the prophet who was in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord just what the girl from the land of Israel had said. And the king of Aram said, go then and I will send along a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold and ten sets of garments. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you my servant Naaman, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to give death or life that this man sends sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Just look and see how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent a message to the king. Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me that he may learn that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and halted at the entrance of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go, wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. But Naaman became angry and went away saying, I thought that for me he would surely come out and stand and call in the name of the Lord his God and would wave his hand over the spot and cure the leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? He turned and went away in a rage But his servants approached and said to him, Father, if the prophet had commanded you to do something difficult, would you not have done it? How much more when all he said to you was, wash and be clean. So he went down and immersed himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a young boy, and he was clean And he returned to the man of God, he and all of his company. He came and stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Please accept a present from your servant. But he said, 
As the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will accept nothing. He urged him to accept, but he refused. Naaman said, If not, please let two mule loads of earth be given to your servant, for your servant will no longer offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god except the Lord. But may the Lord pardon your servant on one count. When my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow down in the house of Rimmon, when I do bow down in the house of Rimmon, may the Lord pardon your servant on this one count. And he said to him, Go in peace. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, and let's pray. God, we come to you on this morning, the week of thanksgiving, and we come to you thankful. Thankful for opportunities to gather together, thankful for opportunities to hear your word and to ask what your word might say to us this morning. And so with that, Lord, we do pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. So my guess is that in all of the stories that we have in the Jesus Storybook Bible that we're going through, this is uh, perhaps the least well-known. I have kind of a foggy memory of this story from when I was a child, but it's nowhere nearly as well-known as David and Goliath or the Ten Commandments or the walls of Jericho crumbling down. There's just some reason that it, that, that it doesn't quite stoke the imagination of children as much as, uh, as some of those other stories. And it's really a bit odd because actually there's, there's quite a bit in this somewhat short Story. In fact, on Wednesday, as we kind of got together as a staff, as we oftentimes do, we, we talked a little bit about this story, and, and we just read it through a couple times, and yet it was, it was striking to see all the different ideas that people had. One of the, uh, one of the things we talked about was, was what the servant girl might teach us. Uh, the servant girl, it's really pretty striking. The story does a, a good job of pointing it out. Here's a, here's a little girl who was taken away as a slave. And so she's living in the house of the people who have taken her away from her country, from her home, from her family. And we don't know for sure what happened to her family. The Jesus Storybook Bible took a wee bit of poetic license and said that they had been killed. I, I don't really see that anywhere in here, but they could have been killed. They could have been enslaved. Uh, they could have been imprisoned. Uh, we really don't know. We just don't know that it doesn't seem like they're around her at all. And here she is, far away from home, with little hope, little freedom, little say at all. And she is in the perfect position to say, why me? Why me, God? Look at all of these things that are going against me. It's clear you don't love me. It's clear you're not there. It's clear you're not caring for me. She easily could have gotten to a place where my guess is many of us oftentimes find ourselves of why me, God? And yet, instead of anger or bitterness, we see her caring for this man who was the commander of the armies that have gone in and raided Israel. 
This is, there is no clearer picture of an enemy than Naaman to this servant girl. And yet, what does she want? She wants him to be healed. She cares for him. And that's pretty striking. As I was thinking about it this week, I I realized that in many ways, this is yet one more example of where I think our children have something to teach us. Because I think children are much better at forgiving than adults are. Right? I'm oftentimes struck by how quickly our children forgive one another. And quite frankly, how often and frequently and quickly they forgive their parents who, it might strike you as surprising, aren't always perfect. Well, at least Megan, right? So, and yet, children have an ability, it seems, to move past quickly. Before you know it, there they are. They're on your lap. They're playing with their sisters or their brothers or friends. And yet, we as adults tend to want to hold on to things. And so one of the things that seems to me that this little girl is, this little servant girl who remains nameless has to teach us is what does it mean? How how are we when it comes to our enemies or those we don't like very much? Are Are we hoping what is best for them? Are we praying for them? Are we caring for them? Are we wanting them to be healed? Are we, are we, do we actually believe God can work through them? Do we have any hopes for them at all that are good hopes? Hopes for a better future. Or do we simply hold on to the past, to the anger of those who may have enslaved us in one way or another? So the servant girl, it seems, has something to teach us. But of course, Naaman has something to teach us as well. Naaman, I, I, hopefully you heard how he, was, uh, how he was described. He was the commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man and in high favor with his master because by him the Lord had given him victory to Aram. In other words, as the commander of the army and a successful one, Naaman was the man. Right? I mean, he was the CEO of Lily. He was the quarterback of the Indianapolis Colts. He was the senior pastor of ZPC. Just kidding. Total joke. We'll cut that off the tape. But he was a prestigious man who had the wealth that came from his prestige. He had the nice house. He had, my guess is, the picture-perfect family. I heard even that his community had just been voted the safest and most desirable community in all of Syria. Everything was perfect. Everything was just right. This was the guy that everyone was saying, oh, it's so lucky to be Naaman. How how wonderful to be able to, 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 to be who Naaman is and have everything that Naaman has. And yet... The scripture says, though a mighty warrior, he had leprosy. In other words, even though everything seemed wonderful and perfect and as if he was the most successful and as if he was the most adored and loved, the reality was much different. And who is it that knew that the reality was different. The servant girl who saw him behind closed doors. 
It's not a far leap, it seems to me, for us to ask ourselves, how many of us in an area in which we live like this, how many of us does it appear from the outside as if we have everything together, as if everything is just right, and yet behind closed doors we suffer emotionally, spiritually, physically, of whatever leprous sort it might be. And yet from the outside, we try to let this appearance as if everything is great. And only those who know us behind closed doors or ourselves, we are the ones who really know what we struggle with. Again and again, it seems to me that's a story that I hear in our area where everything seems great until all of a sudden something huge comes out and you realize that everything wasn't what it first Seem to be. And I wonder if in an area like this, it isn't the church's role to be able to lead by vulnerability and honesty and saying, we are not going to hide the realities in which we live behind our pretty picket fences and our beautiful brick homes and our nice jobs and our nice cars and our girls or our family. I only have girls and our families that will look perfect on our. Christmas letters that we send out in next month. As I thought about that this weekend, we had Paula Taylor. She's a pastor at Solana Beach, which is out in the San Diego area where I was for a little while. And she was here to talk about small groups with us, our, our home groups. She, she leads them. She's the pastor over that at Solana Beach. And she was, she was talking to us a little bit, and she brought up a, a, a video that they had done based on a, a guy by the name of John, a guy I actually know. Uh, and John is from Minnesota, and you'll see that here in a minute. He's very stoic, uh, kind of a stoic Lutheran Minnesotan. And, 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 and John was very successful when he was in Minnesota. He did very well in his job, so well, in fact. Sorry, I see some Minnesotans over there. Uh, so well, in fact, that, 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 that he was able to retire somewhat early and, and, and has a beautiful home that overlooks the Pacific Ocean. And, and so they asked him, though, they wanted him to do a video. They said, can you do a video just talking to us a little bit about small groups and, and, and what that's been like for you? And so, and so Stoic John did the video. And I want you to see this, just a short little video, but I want you to watch this now. Now, this is really not a plug for home groups, but they start in January. (laughs) John no longer had to hide. And it seems to me that John had an opportunity, again, because of the small group where he started. But then this, this was a video that went before the whole congregation and now is in Indiana. I asked him if it was okay for me to show it just to make sure that he was okay with that. But imagine somebody here who you, who you were had held in high regard and for whom it seemed like everything was right. And then he could admit at some point, finally, the reality of the alcoholism that he had struggled with. And Paula said, told us that when that video ended, people started applauding. And it wasn't a polite applause. It was a heartfelt applause. And my suspicion is that it was applause not just for John's courage, but because of the fact that they were applauding and desiring a congregation in which all of them could say, we do not have to hide our struggles and our pain. This is a place where we can be honest and vulnerable with everyone. 
And I wonder if we couldn't be like that small girl, if we could be a community like that, could we not be like a small girl, a small servant girl as we go out into the community, pointing people to the healing that comes only when you stop hiding? Can we be that kind of open, honest, and vulnerable people? But we learn not just from the servant girl and from Naaman. We learn as well from Elisha. And Elisha kind of comes on, though not named, early on in the story. And you may recall what happens is that... that, that that, that she tells her mistress, and the mistress tells Naaman, and, and Naaman goes and tells the king of Aram. And so the king of Aram, he sends a letter. But to whom does he send the letter? To the king, right? He doesn't send it to the prophet, because if you're a king, you don't lower yourself by, by dealing with some common religious man. You, you go right to the powerful, to the, to the king. That's what you know. That's the channel of power that you use. And so that's what he did. And finally, he goes to Elisha. And when he goes to Elisha, right, what does he have? He's got silver and gold and garments. And why is he bringing those things? Because when somebody does something for you, you, you pay them. This is simply what you do, right? It's just, this is the culture in which we live. It's the culture in which they live. If someone does something for you, you do something for them. And so then after the healing, what happens? He gets healed, and then he goes, and he, 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 as soon as he gets healed, Naaman, you know, after making this great confession about serving the one Lord and God of Israel, you know, then he, then he begs him, really, can I please give you a present? Can I give you something? And Naaman doesn't do what I probably would do, right? Which would be like, no, 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 no. Oh, I mean, if you insist, right? I mean, you've done that, right? When someone's going to offer to pay for the bill at, at a meal, right? Do none of y'all do that? Is it just me? Okay. <laughs> we need to be a more honest community then, right? <laughs> but not only does Elisha say no, he says no with great with great emphasis. He says, as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will accept nothing. In other words, Naaman, or excuse me, Elisha wants Naaman to know beyond the shadow of a doubt that his healing, that, his, that, this, that this gift to which he has been given by God is a free gift, that this grace, as we would call it, cost him nothing initially. It is freely given. And Naaman wants to make sure Elisha wants to make sure that Naaman knows this, that it is a free gift of grace. Now, you might be saying to yourself, haven't we talked about this enough lately? And we have. We have been talking a lot about God's free gift to us of grace. We talked about it three weeks ago with the wall around Jericho and the fact that God didn't want them to go straight in because he wanted them to realize that this city and all the promised land was a... 
gift, right? And then the week before that with the Ten Commandments, right? We said you don't start with saying there are, you know, serve no other gods. You start with God saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, so that they know that it begins by what God has done freely for us. We talked about the creation story, about what a great sign it is of God creating us first, that God acts first and acts freely. When we went through the Psalms or through the Colossians, again and again, we keep bringing up grace and this free gift of God. And why do we do that? For two reasons and for two reasons alone. Number one, because it is the common theme that, is, that goes throughout all of the scripture. I'm not just looking up words in the concordance like grace or free gift and then just saying, let's just talk about this. No, you can't read the scripture without talking about grace. It is the theme that goes throughout the whole Bible. And reason number two is because even though it's the theme that goes throughout the Bible, we don't actually believe it. And we can say we do until the cows come home. But it is a continual wrestling match for us. Because everything else in our world, 99.9% of everything else is not based on free grace. It is based on I do something for you, you do something for me. And again and again and again. And so we cannot stop talking about it because it does not make sense to us. It is illogical. And there's some irony, it seems to me, that in this very story, if you read it carefully, you might even find yourself struggling with the grace that we see going on. It happens towards the end of the story. Right after Right after Naaman says, we only serve one God, I will only serve the God of Israel, then he begins to ask Elisha. He says, but, but there's one last thing. Did you catch this? There's one last thing. It's a kind of a random thing to toss in there, quite frankly. I want you to know that when I go into the house of Rimen, right, the, another God... And as I go in there with my master, I want you to know that I am going to... I'm going to bow down. Now, if someone were to come into this church, or if someone were to ask me that very question, hey, I believe in God, but I got to tell you, I'm about, I want you to know I'm going to go bow down to this other God. What would I say? You know what I'd say. No. And then I would give you all the reasons why I think you shouldn't do this. This is not a good thing. But what does Elisha say? Go in peace. And, and, and I find what we want to do is we want to come up with excuses and reasons for why Elisha said that. Because it, it doesn't make sense. This isn't the right answer, Elisha. Maybe Elisha was just kind of succumbing to the, to the power and the prestige of Naaman. He didn't want to make Naaman angry. Or, 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 or maybe he just didn't understand Naaman. Or maybe he said, go in peace. But at the same time, and it's not written in Scripture, he's shaking his head No. We come up with lots of reasons. Why? Because it is absolutely uncomfortable for us. And I think there is only one reason why Elisha says, go in peace. 
And that reason is grace. Do I think that God wanted Naaman to bow down to Rimmon? Absolutely not. Does it feel to me as if, as if, as if Naaman is taking advantage of God? It completely does. And I, am I going to start standing up here and preach that I think that we should all start bowing down to all the other gods around us of, of wealth or prestige or whatever else it is? No. And yet I am left with this uncomfortable reality that Elisha and God shows grace even before Naaman does what he is going to do. And it forces me to ask myself, and perhaps it forces all of us to ask ourselves, is God more full of grace than we can even imagine? And it should certainly cause us when we start dealing with others to ask ourselves, are we beginning and ending our time with them full of grace. This is an uncomfortable part of this story for me. And yet it seems to me that, that, that God's not done with showing us how important this abundant grace is that we have toward one another. Because there's a little bit more to this story. It's not in the Jesus Storybook Bible, understandably so. It's fine, but but I want us, as we close, I want you to hear this one last part. Here's what it says. But when Naaman had gone from him, being Elisha, a short distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, thought, my master has let that Aramean Naaman off too lightly by not accepting from him what he offered. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something out of him. So Gehazi went after Naaman. And when Naaman saw someone running after him, he jumped down from the chariot to meet him and said, is everything all right? He replied, yes, but my master has sent me to say, two members of a company of prophets have just come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. Naaman said, please accept two talents. He, he urged him and tied up two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothing and gave them to two of his servants who carried them in front of Gehazi. When he came to the citadel, he took the bags from them and stored them inside. He dismissed the men and they left. He, being Gehazi, went in and stood before his master. And Elisha said to him, where have you been, Gehazi? He answered, your servant has not gone anywhere at all. But he said to him, did I not go with you in spirit when someone left his chariot to meet you? Is this a time to accept money and to accept clothing, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen and male and female slaves? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he left his presence, lepro left his presence leprous as white as snow. Why is Gehazi, the slave, punished here? 
Surely a part of it could be because he seemed to be stealing from Naaman. Surely a part of it is is because he lied to Elisha. But I think the larger, the crux of the matter is the reason why he was leprous with snow, the reason why he was punished in this way was because, because Elisha knew that now Naaman could begin to think that he had actually paid off the healing of God. Now Naaman says, hey, that's great. Now I paid for that gift. I paid for that grace. Not only that, but it is also a sign to us of what Gehazi has to teach us. Which is that if we are a people who do not lead and end with grace, then we will be the lepers. Then we will begin to suffer because of the reality that we have not been able to give grace in abundance just as God has given it to us. Sisters and brothers in Christ, as I kind of learn and and follow the scripture more and more, I am becoming more and more convinced that we are not a people who should have grace or for whom grace would be a nice thing to have. We are a people who absolutely have to have grace. We need to be a people of grace. Because a people of grace are a people who can love and hope even for the greatest of their enemies. A people of grace are a people who cultivate a community like this that says we can be honest and vulnerable with one another because we know that they love and care for us and that they will have grace upon us for everything that we wrestle with. And a people of grace will be humble enough to know that God's grace is always going to be larger than what we could ever imagine. Sisters and brothers in Christ, accept the overwhelming grace of God that is a free gift. And then with others, be a people who begin and who end and for everywhere in between are able to be a people of grace, no matter how scandalous It may be a people of grace. Amen.